Thursday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And Chris, it looks like they're getting ready, getting ready to get everything buttoned up here. Uh, we got a lot of, uh, a lot of news people, we got a lot of uh, Smoking astronaut wives. There's, there's a lot of smoking in this. Yeah, uh, yeah. You could. I, I actually had the, I, like watching this. I had to have a panic. Like I'm not like a. Uh, I don't smoke. Um, I it, but smoke doesn't typically bother me if someone's smoking near me. But if I'm in a room where a lot of people are smoking, like I get like a panic attack where I need to go outside <laughs> or something. And yeah. I started to feel that watching this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, they're just chuffing away, yeah. and it's. Uh, Ah, uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, it's funny how clear that room is because if there's, if there were that many people in the room back in 1970, you know, there would have been like a blue cloud about two feet off the ceiling. It's just, it, yeah, exactly, it exactly. Was, it was perpetual, and uh, the uh, yeah, it's 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 fun. It's it's so um, it's so weird because this throws me back to 1970 so hard. All those the TV sets in these things with the you know the UHF and the VHF knobs. Um, I the only thing is I think that 1970 TV set that's at uh, Jay Lovell's is a little. I'm, I, this is nitpicking, I know, but that that's a little bit too new for 1970. A 1970 uh, TV set back then uh, would have been a, a more of a hard metal and um, uh, an all plastic TV. I don't recall seeing any of those in uh, in 1970. Plus, there's no. Uh, there's no color, uh, there's no tint and intensity controls on the front, which is what is typical of that time. I mean, it'd been coming out of the 60s. If you look at um, the TV that's in the beginning of the minute, uh, where Marilyn's watching the one in her home set, uh, up at the top of the screen, there's two knobs. And every one of the old 60s TVs used to have one for intensity, which is kind of like the saturation level of the color. And then there was one called tint, which was the hue. It would go toward the red or toward the green, so you could adjust it. Interesting. As as, uh, as time went on, as you got toward the 80s, uh, General Electric started it, but they started using what was known as the uh, the color interval uh, code that was built into the video, and that uh, it would tell it automatically what the colors were supposed to be set at, so you didn't have to adjust the color. I mean, you could. But you'd have to go into the controls and, and, and adjust the, the controls internally rather than uh, what was being done. That That's that 80s TV that we're seeing in the schoolroom. I know it's nitpicky, but I'm an old man with, you know, and I get to be cranky about these things. <laughs> I love uh, it. I love it. I remember, you know, this is one of those moments where it's like, remember in our day? But, like, I remember, I vividly remember TVs being like a piece of furniture. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. they were big. They were on the floor. Yeah, they you had know. the whole wood cabinet and uh, and giant, yeah. you know, and like it was only in mono, but they always had two speakers for some reason. It, uh, it, was, <laughs> it just it looked, you know, they had to even it out. And I I <laughs> I had aunts and uncles who had, uh, I mean, we just had a regular color TV, but I had aunts and uncles who had the thing that was like a combination TV, and then you opened up the lid, and there was a stereo phonograph inside, and a radio, and even a place to store your albums. So they were, yeah, like you said, it was it was like a 
they were like a credenza. I mean, it was a gigantic <laughs> yeah. thing. My grandmother had, I've never been to a home that's ever had one again, but my grandmother had this really elaborate, like, projector. Oh, like, wow. It was like a projection TV. Um, it was a really, really big screen, and it had, like, you, you had to slide this part forward and then flip it up like a rumble seat on a car. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember, remember that. You know yeah, what I'm yeah, about? yeah. I, I, I remember that as a kid, and it was a big deal. Like, you couldn't go touch that or, or anything. It had to be clean. <laughs> and then, like, I, it was just really, I just remember that, like, um, and she was just watching, like, normal TV on it. Like, wasn't watching movies and and yeah. stuff. She just had this projection TV that she'd watch, like, the news on, you know, like, uh. You know, and it's it's funny now. You know, with everything have switch, switching over to flat screens, that's the most common junk item I usually see out by the curb. There's like these gigantic old projector TVs from the '80s and '90s. That, they're like four feet tall and uh, stacked out. Yeah, this thing was really tall in the corner. I remember that. It, it, God, I wish we had a picture of it. But yeah, well, it, they're out there. I'm sure, but I mean, yeah. and they they cost a fortune. They were like they were like you know fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars. Yeah. They're enormous. She was really proud of it. I remember. I mean, that was <laughs> it was a big deal. Yeah, it's, it's like owning a boat back then. You know, it's like yeah, it's yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we we get to see a bunch of things. Uh, one thing we get the introduction of um, the uh, the visiting chaplain there, the priest uh, who's played by Ron Howard's dad. That's Rance Howard, uh, character actor from uh, from the forties and fifties in a lot of westerns. Um, so he he managed in in one minute we both we get at, at the beginning of the minute we get Ron Howard's mom Blanche Lovell and then we get, <laughs> meanwhile his dad is out uh, comforting the Lovell family. So uh, that's pretty well getting some uh, family screen time there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he already had his his brother is uh, is working Mission Control. So. That's right. His brother's in a lot of his stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. his. Like like Alfred Hitchcock always put himself in the movies, but he always manages to get his brother Clint. Uh, a little role. I kind of secretly love cameos like that where, like, the directors, the creators put themselves in the movie, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, if you watch the movie Airplane, the guys who made the movie Airplane are the two marshalers at the beginning that marshal one of the jets through the terminal. Yeah, yeah. You know, and stuff like that. I love those little <laughs> little cameos. <laughs> it's great. Um, I am not sure, but... Um... I think the guy, if we, as we're watching the, at Marilyn Lovell's house, the guy on the left of the screen, I believe is the co-author of Lost Moon. Um, he's listed as a newsman and he doesn't oh, have a, right. he doesn't have a speaking part in his, and I believe that's the, uh, that's uh, Jim Lovell's co-author there. That's um, uh, Jeffrey Kluger? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he doesn't get a line. I guess that would require a SAG card, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, interesting to see that that's his. So there's like cameos galore in this particular minute. So this is the only uh, that that scene there is the only fake uh, news uh, the news people. And it, it's funny they go through a bunch of different uh, news people here. We have uh, uh, Walter Cronkite is doing voiceovers of things, uh, and that is not that's not the 1970. Uh, Walter Cronkite. That's the 1995 Walter Cronkite pretending that he's back in 1970 uh, doing uh, voiceovers for a bunch of uh, uh, news footage of different people around the world uh, worrying about uh, Apollo 13. Um, We do get a real picture of uh, Chet Huntley, who uh, my my parents, when I was little, used to watch the Huntley-Brinkley report, and Chet Huntley was one half of that 
uh, Chet's a very interesting guy. He's uh, uh, probably got along with Frank Borman pretty good. He's a native of Montana. And uh, Chet Huntley, uh, he was a very, very nice down-to-earth guy. Uh, and they, uh, when back when NBC News was uh, starting up in the 50s, they had a, uh, they had a newsman named John Cameron Swayze who uh, he was getting a little bit old, was wanting to retire, and there was a, uh, a debate in NBC News whether to use uh, Chet Huntley, who had come from the West Coast, he had worked in Los Angeles News, uh, whether they were going to use him as the new national anchor or use uh, David Brinkley, who was uh, stationed in uh, Washington, D.C. and did the local news in, in the, at, the, at the NBC's Washington, D.C. station, WRC. So what they decided was, well, why don't we just use both of them? So they they put the, they put them together. They put uh, uh, Chet Huntley was in uh, New York and David Brinkley was in Washington, and they would do the uh, the Huntley Brinkley report. They called it. It went from 1956 to 1970, I think 1972. Um, I may be wrong about that that number, but uh, until Chet retired, and uh, and then David Brinkley took over for the news by himself. But uh, they were very good. They they they. They would always say "Good night, Chet," "Good night, David," and "Good night from NBC," and that was that was kind of their catchphrase. And neither of them liked it, but everybody else liked it, so they did. <laughs> they did it for uh, twenty years. But uh, <laughs> Chet, Chet was such a he's such a strange not a strange guy, but he was just he, he just had an interesting life. He he was he was married for twenty years, and then he met uh, he met this weather girl named Tippy Stringer, who was working with David Brinkley down in Washington. He came down to visit, and he saw her on the monitor, and. Uh, he uh, got a divorce and married Tippy all in the same year, and, and they uh, they then he decided to retire and he wanted to get back to Montana. He went to he went to Montana and bought a or he built a ski resort outside of Bozeman, and uh, it's called uh, Big Sky was the name of the was a ski resort and uh, he. He and Tippy ran the thing, and he became a, a, a ski lodge operator. A, a really weird little bit about he—he's very much a Montanan. I mean, he's like he likes you know cattle ranching and all this other stuff. He's just a big Western guy who just—he had to do this job as an anchorman. But he used to—he missed the West, and uh, I grew up in New Jersey. And uh, Chet Huntley bought a uh, a stock farm for um, for Angus, uh, you know, uh, and they used to sell Chet. Huntley beef in uh, local supermarkets because he had the stock farm, and uh, finally N <laughs> NBC made him sell it because they were he was like playing on his he was trading on his name and they have like you know a little picture of Chet Huntley on on these boxes of hamburgers. That's <laughs> so, fantastic. I don't think I've ever bought meat because of the person endorsing it. I have to say. Well, here in, here in Texas, here in Texas, we do eat Nolan Ryan beef. So I yeah I gotta say that it's like the pitcher from the Rangers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He really. Is, yeah. He is, he is a rancher, and I, I yeah this is I know we don't do we don't do commercials on our show, but <laughs> Nolan Ryan beef is the best uh, hamburger meat I've ever had, and it, it's one of those things that you know if you get the store brand or you get the Nolan Ryan brand, I'd, I'd go with the Nolan Ryan hamburger. So, um, really interesting. I, yeah, Chris, I have Chris, to try you, that with my, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my Willie Stargell hot dog or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to, we'll... <laughs> yeah. When you, if we get you down to Texas, I'll make you a Nolan Ryan hamburger. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I think this might be worth the trip alone. <laughs> yeah. Oh my, gosh. And you're into barbecue. He, he has, yeah. oh, he has great brisket. We'll get some Nolan Ryan brisket and, and, and <laughs> man, I had no, I just, you just opened my, this is a whole new world. I had no idea that. 
that uh, this was going on. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he's he's deadly serious about his about his beef, and I'm I'm glad. You know, he 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 pitches as well as he makes uh makes you know happy happy cattle. Um, we get uh as as we're getting toward the the end of the minute, we get to see the uh, um, Jim Lovell gazing wistfully at his, at the Apollo thirteen. Uh, this is actually the replacement Apollo thirteen one because of course they had a, a plaque that had Ken Mattingly's name on it. And uh, they had a, at the last minute they had to etch a new one with Jack Swigert's signature, so uh, that never got to go on the moon. And right now, if you want to see that plaque, it's at the uh, Adler Planetarium. Uh, it, when they were they were stuffing everything, remember to uh, to write the uh, the weight adjustments in the uh, in the command module that that got stuffed in, and uh, it was donated as, as of course uh, Jim Lovell is a Chicagoan. It was it was given to the Adler Planetarium, and you can see it there today. Um, just uh, it's 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 sad it's not on the moon, but it's great that uh, it's it's out in public view, and uh, you know it's it's always it's so weird. A lot of this the, the who owns what and how you know I I think all all of these things are supposed to be owned by the Smithsonian, but there was so much equipment and gear and things nobody's ever really fought over the legal. Acquisition of that, and you must go through this a lot, Chris. Where who owns what when you're when you're trying to fill up a museum, and how do you how you get uh, title to it? Yeah, it's um, I, I would say that you know usually, um, so typical general aviation stuff totally different because civilian aviation obviously you own it uh, unless it, like you had it from an airline or something that's no longer in business. Um, military stuff. Uh, you know the 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 worst case scenario is a World War II veteran came home and he kept some of his equipment, you know, from yeah. that he was supposed to turn in. But but the Air Force doesn't really come after that. I mean, it's, especially if you're talking like personal effects and things like that. Um, the, the space stuff is different. Uh, the space stuff. Um, so it, you know, it puts you in a hard spot a little bit because sometimes. Um, you know, the astronauts have had something in their possession for 40 years, 50 years, and then suddenly it, it was kind of like an unknown item that nobody really knew even still existed. And then suddenly it turns up, and, um, you know, you, you, you'll get, you know, NASA or, or Air and Space who say, like, well, technically, you know, you shouldn't have it. My, I guess my bigger issue is you need to go tell that astronaut that, he shouldn't have that <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Uh, i'm not getting involved in that you know um, yeah and uh and that's been our sort of policy is if if you are saying that that person should not have it then you need to go tell that person uh not you know not not go through a through a museum because uh, it's a little easier to tell a museum like hey you have to turn it over to us because he shouldn't have had it it's a little harder to go tell you know neil armstrong that hey you've got to give us your stuff um, so, uh, that's kind of my view. On it, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I just, I, I just, you know, it, it's like, even I, I keep thinking, I mean, you've had, you've had the, the Frank Borman collection and stuff and there, yeah, there must absolutely. be things, you know, like, like he has his helmet and things and that's kind of who owns this. Yeah. Or who owns that yeah, that, you, that you, actually, uh, you know, is one of those items that kind of came up and it was like, well, uh, you know, who has this and. You know, and they're luckily, you know, NASA and Air and Space Museum are really great to work with. Um, yeah. Uh, I just try to duck out of the hole who owns it part of it. 
um, because you know that's a bigger battle between the entities of the government and the astronaut. You know, yeah. because that's yeah. how that's why it survives. Um, the other thing that I you know I have a hard time with uh, personally is you know a lot of times like NASA or something will come after an artifact and say, well, you know. Uh, you shouldn't have actually ever had that, so it needs to come to us. And my problem with it is, is that item wouldn't even survive had that astronaut not taken it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, that, it would have wound up. Or best case scenario, it would have wound up in like one of those uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouses and just kind of well, disappeared. Well, and that's and that's a best case scenario. I mean, yeah, let's face yeah. it, a lot of the stuff got scrapped out. Yeah, and um, you know, there was a whole battle. I mean, uh, I'm not shedding any new light there was a big battle between the grissoms and and nasa over uh over one of his spacesuits. i think it was his gemini suit yeah um you know and betty grissom being betty grissom uh gave perhaps one of the funniest quotes i've ever heard uh where they asked her where she thought the suit should go and she said i i, I think it should go to epcot and they said Epcot, and she says, "Well, NASA was always a Mickey Mouse operation, and, <laughs> and that, it should just go there." And I'm like, "Oh my wow. god, wow. yeah, there, there yeah, was that's, no, that's Betty being Betty, yeah." There was, <laughs> yeah, there was no love lost uh, there. So, yeah, I, I just prefer to stay out of that argument uh, yeah. when it comes well, to these items. And um, uh, basically, yeah. it's like sort it out with NASA, and then once it's all clear, we would love to display it. And that, um, but you're right, there is. It happens, um, and it's not a lot of it's not on purpose. It's, it's, gee, I didn't realize I still even had this, or, you know, how many times do you? Because let's face it, the astronauts were working. This was work. Um, Jim, how many times have you gone through a, a drawer, you know, and you're like, oh, I still had some stuff from this job I had, years ago. It might be an ID badge. It might be a, a screwdriver or a pen or something, you know. Uh, that you used at this old job, and and for them sometimes as artifacts that happened, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, and, yeah, uh, and it, it's it's like this is the you know, and and you're the one that knows the story, and everything like an artifact gains any kind of provenance, but when it has a story to it, yes. So yes. if if like you have you know Buzz Aldrin the first that you know when he signed the uh, his flight log after getting off of Apollo Eleven. The flight log becomes an artifact, and the pen that he signed it with becomes an artifact. But who owns yeah. the pen, and where does you know? And yeah. and trying to get trying to get all that kind of um, stuff down as to who gets titled to what. I get I get the feeling a lot of times with museums and with NASA and with uh, Air and Space is that whoever can afford to take care of it winds up winds up with the thing. You know, if you have if you get something donated to a museum and the museum can't afford it. Uh, yeah. to, to to replace yeah. the thing it's like well here take it back NASA and find somebody who can you know who can take care of it and yeah and I you know and and like I said Air and Space and NASA you know have been amazing to work with um yeah I think that there's um you know I, I think there's definitely a consideration of you need to make sure the artifact is going to survive I mean that that's what we're after at the end for all of us is is uh you know can this flashlight be here in a hundred years you know that's the end goal and um so sometimes sometimes you have to face an unfortunate fact that it might have a better home somewhere else yeah um i'll give you a great example of this is is the memphis bell uh famous b-17 you know it uh was in memphis for years people tried to take care of it the best they could um because of these people this thing survived 
Uh, without them, the airplane, again, would have been scrapped. Um, but at some point, it became too much for them. Uh, and they couldn't get the support of the local community. And they had to do a really tough thing, and that was contact the Air Force Museum and say, come get this airplane. It's too historic you know, to take chances with it and let it deteriorate. Um, that's a tough call to make. I mean, if you guys have ever worked on a project that's near and dear to your heart, you know, imagine having to turn it over to somebody because it's for the best. Yeah, yeah, Tough and I, phone I, call. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's know. it's difficult. I mean, I we've had the uh, uh, here in uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth, we had the the B thirty six, the city of Fort Worth, which used to be uh, you know a, a, a gate guard at uh, Carswell for years, and then it was at uh, Great Southwestern Airport before they built the DFW Airport. It was out in front there because they built B thirty sixes right here in uh, in Fort Worth. Yeah, that's um, the last one built, right? Last yeah, B36 yeah. Six off the assembly line. Yeah, and it was it was out of Carswell, and there were a bunch of great volunteers who, you know, basically buffed out the rust marks and uh, tried to keep it. But it was out in the hot, you know, it was out in the Texas sun, uh, baking in the heat, and you know the paint was peeling off of it. All the the rubber inside was was going away, and. They couldn't really afford it. It's an expensive proposition to take a giant airplane like a B-36 and keep it around. And it's it was enormous. So they had to dis- dismantle the whole thing. And uh, they shipped it out to Pima because it couldn't go, you know, Dayton, even though Dayton would probably love it, they didn't really have room for it. And so it's out It's out in the dry desert heat of, uh, of Pima. And... Uh, you know, they only have so much money to take care of things out there, but yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's out of the way and they'll, they, you know, basically did the whole creosote uh, mothballing it. Um, and it's, you know, it's covered and it's still someday, maybe, maybe somebody will take it and put it in a museum somewhere and get it back up to, uh, not flight worthy, but at least museum worthy, uh, restoration status. But that's a lot of money. Oh yeah. I mean, so, so the air force museum actually has one. Um, okay. There's is inside. It was. It's an interesting story. It's. It's. They preserved that airplane. How I like to see airplanes preserved. They literally flew it to the museum and then put it in a building. Yeah. Um, the. So the one that's down at Pima is actually at the Pima Air and Space Museum, and I don't doubt that someday you're going to see that airplane inside. Uh, they keep expanding more and more buildings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a feeling you're just going to see that airplane in the museum eventually. Uh, you know, indoors, but. Uh, but think about it. I mean, that's a large airplane to get inside. Yeah, I mean, and, that's and a lot of airplane. And, and yeah, and, and think about how much you know how much air conditioning you need for it. And I mean, they have yeah. they the, the stuff that they they've worked on already. They have they have a seventeen, right? Uh, yeah, they have a B seventeen. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they, they that's an impressive place. If you ever get a chance to go to Pima, the the Boneyard is right there. But the museum um, is spectacular. I mean, you could walk for miles to this museum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They have B and they have like many varieties of B fifty twos. It just giant, you know, and they're all yeah. out, parked outside. And you just they have walk the X fifteen. Uh, the one that dropped the X fifteen is there. That's right. Yeah, and and you can walk right under these things. And there's old, you know, constellations and stuff. And just there, there's something about being being out and seeing a whole field of of aircraft out out in the open is, is amazing. And um, every you know, Hustlers. They've got F one hundred twos. They've got variants of the F one hundred two. Um, it, it just all your favorite air, aircraft out there, but trying to imagine covering any of them or, or getting them up to um, a museum quality restoration, that would take 
billions and they just you know there's only so much money they can devote and you know in their in their budget to to restoring so many aircraft yeah. and they're just doing it a little bit at a time yeah they're doing um, amazing work though they, I, my hat's yeah. off to andrew and those guys out there that uh i mean they're doing it and uh and the nice thing is because it's in the environment that's in there's no hurry yeah uh, yeah i mean you know yeah some <laughs> of the rubber parts and stuff like that you're gonna have to refab up but um you know they've got the windows protected the interiors are protected um you know the paint and stuff like that'll fade but you know there's no yeah. corrosion or anything like that you know yeah no they'll, they'll be able they'll be able to work on those so it's just think of it as as storage for later you know it's people in the future will be able to look at these and that's, that's their their primary goal is preservation and they can work on the restoration later um so anyway we kind of got a feel of, yeah. <laughs> of from here but it's just interesting seeing this one little plaque that you can you know the plaque's been to the moon and back and i think that's that's one of the best things when you're when you're at any kind of a museum and you look you look at a piece of metal and you think about where it's been and what you know what what was going on around it while while it was uh, making its little trip um seeing that plaque at the adler uh is uh just an amazing thing to see there there's also if you go to um uh uh, the Cradle of Aviation Museum out in Long Island, uh, you can get, you can get to see the armrest that uh, that Jim Lovell took as they were stripping the inside of the the lunar module. It's just interesting seeing what you know everything they could grab that they could just add weight to the uh, to the command module. That became <laughs> this is this is a museum piece. This is another museum piece, and uh, it's it's just something to see. Uh, also, going if you go to uh, uh, mission Control down in Houston, the, the new, you know, they've, they've revamped the, or they've restored the original Mission Control in Houston. You can see the uh, the mirror that uh, uh, that Jim Lovell had in the lunar module that he could look, you know, look out, uh, look out behind the, the lunar module and, and look back at the command module. So that they actually have it. They put it in a plaque and uh, I forget what the what the wording was on the plaque, but it says this is uh, this mirror went to the went to the moon and came back safely. Uh, thanks to the, uh, uh, which which reflects well on the on the staff of Mission Control. That's that's what they, they said on the on the mirror. <laughs> so that was clever. Um, but uh, so we end we end this minute with uh, uh, Jim Lovell telling uh, uh, Fredo that it's time to time to bail out while the while the going's good. Um, and you can see that well, it's not his, but it's the other the other armrest that comes down. You can see at the very last second, you can see the the armrest that's now at the Cradle of Aviation Museum. So uh, definitely something to see. Uh, well, I guess that's that's all that's going on in in, in this episode. We covered we, soup to nuts today, um, but uh, we've got more more things going on tomorrow and some great uh, guests coming up uh, next week. So uh, please, if if you want to talk about this particular minute, we're always happy to hear from you on social media. Go to uh, Facebook at uh, Mission Control uh, Apollo Thirteen Minute Mission Control or on Twitter at uh, Apollo Thirteen Minute. Uh, always love hearing from you. Uh, and I skip the rest. You know, you know all. This. The other things I usually say here. You know where but, to find us. Yeah, you know where to find us. We're, we're out there. So uh, anyway, it looks like we're coming up on uh, loss of signal in about 30 seconds anyway. So we will see you here as we finish out the week tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.